Hi, and welcome to Technotopia, a podcast for a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today we're talking to Ryan Cousineau, a self-described amateur futurist. We're talking a little bit about energy, a little bit about cities, and a lot about what it will take to make a better future. This is Technotopia. And we're off. So here we go. This, no, it's all right. So this yeah. is uh, Ryan Cousineau. Uh, you answered our call. You're an amateur futurist. This is the first amateur futurist yes. that we've had on the show, which is very exciting for me because amateur futurists are probably the best kind of futurists. The real futurists are actually really boring because all they think about is like how to make your cubicle slightly sunnier. Uh, I'm, I, I- I'm always amazed at amateur uh, professional futurists and how able <laughs> they are able to be wrong. Like there, there's some amazing guys. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you, but did he, he was in syndication? There was a guy named Frank Ogden who wrote under the name Doctor Tomorrow when I was a kid. Huh. And and I've done some casual googling. He doesn't even seem to be available around the time. At, at the time, his his shtick was he was actually like a, a, a septuagenarian futurist. And so I I fear that the truth must be that since that was about the 80s or 90s when he was working so maybe he didn't most make likely thing is that make it out dr tomorrow yeah probably <laughs> didn't make it to the uh yeah he probably didn't make it to the extropian future he was hoping for well i mean i think i think as we go forward with all this all this futurist talk we basically the the interesting thing is that a lot of the futurist stuff that we've talked to over the past few here pause for a second i think you're you're move the mic a little way from your mouth because you're kind of mm-hmm. okay sorry your, about that how's that can Try, your that? Breath. Try all that. Right, cool that's fine okay Three, two, one. Um, so a lot of the futurists, so I've like Alvin Toffler, I remember him. He was future shocked, and there was like a Faith Popcorn kind of person. Uh, Nicholas Negroponte was the big one back in the 90s. And all these guys have had interesting ideas. And they, I guess they all, I guess they, but I mean, some of the best futurists have been somebody like William Gibson, who basically said, right. yeah, everybody's going to be plugged into these computers in a little bit and watch out what's going to happen next. And he, yeah. And and Gibson's fun, but you know what? I really like William Gibson. You know, he's he's basically my homeboy, uh, more or less. He's adopted the city of Vancouver, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much where I am. Uh, but you know, and I love his writing. But Gibson's also like wrong a lot, like really wrong. Maybe as wrong as anybody in science fiction in a lot of his books. <laughs> I think he just made a lot of enemies. Well, that's okay. I, I, I'm only an amateur, so this yeah, yeah, is going okay. to affect so not, my paycheck. So, so why don't you tell us a little <laughs> no, bit about I mean, your... Like, yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Get in here. I'm, I'm just a cranky old guy on the internet, more or less, but I've been there for a longer, a little bit longer than most of my competitors. That's the mm-hmm. trick. Sure. Um, I, I'm a 40-something. I work in an IT field in a, in a fairly mundane job, and I have a lot of hobbies ranging from uh, complaining on uh, Twitter to uh, crochet. Um in terms of my relationship with the future, what a terrible, pretentious thought that is. Uh, I'm just a guy who reads a lot and thinks a lot and thinks a little bit about what the future might be like. So, I mean, Gibson does exactly the very same thing. And, you know, he's got some beautiful, beautiful visions and they range all over the place, right? So, in the early 1980s, he was writing about this uh, corporate driven techno dystopia mm-hmm. that we don't really seem to be very close to, despite what a lot of people might tell you. Um, on the other hand, he more recently wrote a great book called Pattern Recognition, which I very much had a lot of fun with. And it's, I mean, I think he would he would admit it is very much into the realm of science fantasy, and mm-hmm. that the premises of that book are spruff. That I don't think he'd be 
I don't think he believes in the sort of the MacGuffin premise of that book, which uh, at the risk of spoiling it is more or less a many worlds hypothesis yep. with some time travel thrown in. But uh, beyond that, I think he's fairly serious about his theory of the jackpot, which is big in that book. And if I had to bet for or against the jackpot, on one hand, I'd be willing to bet pretty heavily against, but on the other hand, that's an easy bet to make because it's one of those things where if you're betting in against the end of the world, it means even if you lose the bet that nobody will care. Yeah, exactly. So, so, well, so <laughs> let's explain the jackpot real quick. I think we talked about it in, uh, in a previous episode, I believe. Uh, sure. Generally, the idea of the jackpot is that it's a, it's a massive environmental calamity that, that comes uh, slowly, right? Go, going from my half-remembered recollection of the book, I think what he really talked about was that he thought that there was going to be a bunch of problems, including environmental catastrophe, mm -hmm. that were going to catch up all at once. So it would be, I think his vision was something along the lines of a financial crisis, probably a socio-political crisis, and he was certainly thinking very much about the U.S. there in particular, and also a, a, an environmental crisis that would all collapse and sort of cause a super catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, again, I've, it's been just long enough that it, since I've read the book that he's talking in the realm of, you know, something that causes a lot of people to die, a lot of people to get very sick, and then, you know, the what comes out the other end is a society that is, relatively speaking, f doing okay, but much, much well, he's, smaller he's now. He's essentially recreated sort of the Renaissance. So so the Renaissance came about yeah, after, that's a good the, point. after the plague. So you basically killed off all the... All the uh, the workers, I guess, I guess yeah. you could say, uh, all yeah. the poor people, really, which was the which is the saddest thing. You killed off millions of people in Europe, and the ones that were left were the guys who were like, "Well, we got to figure out how to make a how to how to build a bridge now that nobody's going to build it for us." So they, I, I'm embarrassed I never saw that parallel. Yeah, so but there we yeah, go. it's very clearly well, what he's drawing. That's why I run a podcast, and you're an amateur futurist. I think that's fair the, enough. Fair enough. You, you'll solution. be sorry, John, when I get my own podcast. <laughs> it's going to be great. We can we can we can bring you on as amateur futurist every once in a while. <laughs> so you wanted to talk specifically about en uh, energy. You've been you've been studying energy. <laughs> Well, I was rambling on about energy. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, as I said, I come from, uh, you know, I, I hang out in Canada, in a particular part of Canada, where actually it's uh, really funny. I, I, I saw somebody tweet something about, ooh, um, some country in Europe has a really exciting goal. They're going to be like 70% renewable energy by the year 2025. It was like, oh, really? Because, you know, the province I live in is about 99% <laughs> renewable energy, like since about 1965. Mm -hmm. Do you know about this story? So it's a, I live in British Columbia. It's a hydroelectric-driven uh, province. Now, okay. hydroelectric is one of those games where it's an energy source where it has a lot of really great benefits, a couple of key downsides, and it's only a game that you get to play if you have a lot of rivers and a lot of water. Yep. So there's select places in the world where it's pretty much the sweetest thing in the world. And the only the downsides are, crucially, well, if, if you don't like having big reservoirs that basically dam up large former valleys and make them disappear, then you're not going to like hydroelectric. But uh, the rest is, uh, it's the right kind of power in terms of it's relatively good at demand following, unlike a lot of other forms of power, especially, say, stuff like solar and wind, where it's like the energy arrives and you better hope that you're there to catch it, but what do you do the rest of the time? Mm -hmm. Now, the race I see in the future is that there's a bunch of things that have happened. First of all, solar was a terrible idea for many years, and now it's not. And what I mean by that is that the costs all came to be 
Um, I've seen solar work in a couple of funny places that nobody ever talks about. One of them is there's a lot of sunny countries. Uh, for example, Greece is one where it's not um, it's not only not unusual, you'd be weird if you weren't using solar heated water. And the way this works is it's the crudest system in the world. There's literally a big thermal radiator, a thermal absorption panel mm-hmm. on your rooftop. And right underneath it is a big can for holding the water. And that's your hot water heating. And it works pretty well most of the time for most of the people in that part of the world. Um, Solar in the more general case is now at the point where you can put power generation in a lot of parts of the world and have it work economically. The problem is what do you do when the sun sets? Mm -hmm. And what do you do when the power doesn't match the demand? Well, all of a sudden you've got companies like Tesla playing a little game where, oh, here, we'll just throw a lot of batteries into your house. And now that'll actually work, except maybe economically. Uh, Those batteries still aren't cheap. And so the question is, what technology is going to race to the finish first? So the competitor for something like that would probably be, you know, uh, uh, fusion, which, which, you know, I think is going to be big in 30 years. Because, of course, it's been big in 30 years for 30 years. that said, the the ITER project is, I think, the one that's proceeding right now where they're talking about they think this will be the reactor that's sustainable. I, I trust that the folks that are working on that are pretty serious about it. I don't I don't claim to have a deep knowledge about the state of fusion right now, but they've got a roadmap, and they're basically saying that, that they'll have something resembling commercial fusion production in 30 years if they're real lucky. Um, but... You know, the the irony is we might just make it to a future where it's just kind of stuff like solar and wind and then batteries. And that's kind of our load following um, future. Uh, the only problem with that vision is you need a lot of batteries, mm-hmm. like a lot of batteries. And I'm not sure if we're going to come up with something really clever in terms of storage mechanisms or not that's going to make uh, that's going to make that stuff worthwhile on a really grand scale. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Okay, very cool. So the so the vision the vision is in in your experience what do you think is going to be the the defining uh moment for us to move from uh oil to something like this? Is it price? Is it slow? Is it is it a gradual It's price. It's price. It's 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 price and it'll be a lot like what you're seeing right now. It'll be slow at first and then all at once. Although uh, the other thing is that it's it's kind of like I say, as you've as you've experienced in many of your conversations already. It's often easy to guess the future by looking at the past. Mm-hmm. So the past of places that are heavily renewable uh, dependent is places like Iceland or British Columbia, where you've got a big renewable resource that is really easy to exploit. So the thing about dams is there's a huge capital cost, but once you put it up, it just works, and the operating cost is low. And it works for 50 years. They're, they're a great technology, and we were able to successfully exploit them in the 1960s. Um, and as I said, they they don't, uh, you know, if you've got a reservoir-based uh, dam and electric uh, generation system, it's mm-hmm. not uh, it's not dependent on what the water is doing that day, so to speak. With solar. There's a couple ways you can work, right? So it can be a supplemental power source, but I don't think it's a I don't think it's even a great supplemental power source until we find a way of sort of storing and managing it. Um, 
and and really what you want to think about is what is it going to take to get any renewable to be sort of like 85 to 90 percent of your of your generation Mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure um it's going to take time and money um at, at a small scale, I've seen what wind can do, for example. The biggest issue with wind is similar. It either comes or it goes. So you need a storage mechanism. And with wind, although you don't hear as much talk about it, I think the maintenance costs, even in commercial scale, are higher per unit of wind that you generate than they are for solar. Mm-hmm. I think we're on a much better track in terms of seeing better economies for solar panels than we will for wind generators uh, You know, going you know, through the next 10 to 20 years. So, where? how do you get there from here? I mean, the real question is you've got a bunch of places in the world where you're burning fossil fuels, and how are you going to get those? Uh, it's overlooked, but there's a real incremental change where a lot of those places that were burning coal are now burning natural gas. And that's certainly not a message that most people want to hear who are thinking about rah-rah environment, but that's a big improvement in terms of incremental things like the amount of pollution you're putting in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh yeah. Uh, so, you know, sometimes we're very, I think sometimes there's a lot of people who are just resistant to these kinds of incremental improvements because they think it won't get us to the glorious future. So, you know, natural gas doesn't seem like a big deal until it's like, oh, well, there's now half as much smog in this region of the world because we just don't burn coal anymore there. Right. And probably think of a few countries, possibly China, where just such a conversion would be a huge deal. And they're not there yet. Right. They're still doing a lot of coal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the more sexy renewables like solar and wind and the, and the more esoteric technologies, I think they're at this point they're entirely dependent on uh, can batteries become cheap and, and functional enough to be a routine way of doing demand management and, lo- and uh, load management. Okay. Um, so what do you think your life is going to look like in, let's say, 20 years? If I think about that, what I expect is there's going to be some wonderful technology that kids are, are, are working on that just makes me want to get them off of my lawn. Uh, I would say that if I had to guess, there's kind of two threads that are going to be that kind of scary to old people technology. The the first one is artificial intelligence, and lots of people have come on to say, oh, AI is scary. And maybe, maybe yes. I think the other one is that after maybe 20 years of seeing like it was a, a low-level thing that was continually going to be the future, that biotechnology is starting to get democratized in a way crazier way than it was before. And it's a glib prediction, but... Um, you know, there's a reason why everybody and their dog is excited about stuff like CRISPR in terms of just being a very functional, practical method for gene seeking, sequencing and gene hacking mm-hmm. that uh, has a ton of potential, right? And those are the kind of things where you would look at that as a technology. It's interesting now. Um, you know, it's being developed, and in 20 years, it'll be ubiquitous. It'll be kind of like what we were doing 20 years ago with mobile phones, where mobile phones were sort of a toy. They were, you know, exiting the lab or you had one if you if you were very well connected or very uh, rich. And now mobile phones are ubiquitous. They do 10 times more things. They've become, you know, almost the way that we interact and communicate mm-hmm. in ways large and small. Yeah. Okay. So that's the, yeah. 
those are the those are two places where I would see uh, uh, see a big future. But but I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to tell you about one place where I think there's no future and is going to completely not matter in 20 years any more than it does right now. Okay. That's space travel. Yeah. So so space travel is a loser in every possible way. Basically, uh, we're probably at best in 20 years we might be sort of kind of limping our way towards a get a guy to the moon uh, to the to mars mission right that's going to be it there there seems to be no and and i think that the core is there's no very good commercializable future for space especially as long as we're using rockets to get there it's extremely hard to play with the cost per pound to get even to orbit much less anywhere else and once you get to orbit, we've already discovered the one most really useful thing you can do when you're up in orbit, which is you can put a reflector there to bounce signals off of. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a really good technology. Satellites are fantastic. But I have not seen any development that says, well, this is what we're going to do with uh, Idea X once we can put this in low Earth orbit, in geostationary orbit, in any orbit in space up by asteroids. There's... People talk excitedly about how you're going to mine the asteroids, but man, we're going to have to be really, really done with the planet Earth before there's any value in starting to think about mining anything that's above Earth. Yeah, and then how are we going to get up there when we run out of everything up down here? Yeah, I'm I'm less worried about that, and I'll tell you why. Uh, we have a long history of running out of stuff down here and not noticing. Mm-hmm. So we had a real problem when we ran out of whale oil for all practical purposes. Do you remember what that problem was? Well, you basically had the you basically had no way to light your house. Yeah, except did you notice there was actually no transitional phase? We actually we came up with two different technologies that completely took over whale oil to the point where they arguably even saved the whales, right? Sure. One was electric lighting and and the other was uh synthetic uh, not synthetic but mineral oil. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh just extracting oil from the ground. Um, we do this same thing pretty much every time that we get close to a shortage. I mean, you can see it right now where, um, you know, the great peak oil crisis that lasted for about five years right up until we realized that, oh, we've got about a ton of natural gas sitting under the world that we can pull out anytime we want, right? Mm -hmm. And so why did that natural gas become exploitable and valuable? Well, because the price of oil had risen just enough that it was worth going after it. Um, I'm... I'm not joking when I say that, like, uh, it'll take an awful lot before we're, you know, we run out of fuel to the point where we can't get that last rocket out of the atmosphere. Um, and besides, even if we do, I think that might be the final push where all of a sudden everybody goes, well, guess we're doing launch loops. Yep. Yeah. And and I do think that launch loops are the one thing that could actually drop the cost per pound. But even there, although I, I love launch loops and space elevators and all of those technologies for their potential to get us to space cheaply. I still don't see how they change the value of being in space that much. That once you get up there, I think that what may eventually happen is the market that breaks open space would be most likely tourism. That there's a lot of value to being the person who gets to go to the moon for fun, hang out on the moon, hang out in space. Uh, I think that's a, there's a reason why the groups that are trying to commercialize space travel right now are thinking of essentially a tourist market. Okay, so... So basically you're saying that William Gibson is is no good and that space space is stupid. In so many words, yes. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so once again you you made all sorts of all sorts of excellent friends here on, here on Technotopia. Well, so, I'm not here to make friends. No, I know, you're not, I know you're not. I know you're not. I know you're not. 
right. Well, that's I'm just a cranky guy. Okay. So that's great, Ryan. So I, I appreciate you coming on. It's, uh, it's interesting to hear. I was I I have been thinking about energy a lot recently, so it's so this is this is an interesting um, interesting side side uh, path to go down. It's a it's going to be it's going to be really cool, and especially since you guys are since you guys up there in Vancouver are, are more enlightened than us than us New York. Well, we're not here. more enlightened. We're fifty percent more lucky, and mm-hmm. we're fifty percent you know uh, reaping the good decisions that uh, that some very cranky conservative politicians made in the nineteen fifties and sixties. So, you know, I guess the uh, moral of the story is choose your parents well. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so there you have it. Ryan Cousineau, a amateur futurist who came on out of the goodness of his heart. Thank you very much. Where can people find uh, some information about you? Well, I'm on all of the worst uh, um, uh, social media services with the worst reputations among the better people. So you can usually find me on Twitter as rcousine, R-C-O-U-S-I-N-E. Mm-hmm. And you can usually find me on Facebook as one of the many Ryan Cousinos. Um, I do have a website that is very rarely uh, updated, and the website is wiredcola.com. All right. Thanks a lot, Ryan. All right. Uh, it's been a pleasure, John. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.